Section 8 of the Roman Triumvirate by Charles Merivale. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4. The First Triumvirate of Caesar, Pompeius, and Crassus. Part 1. Caesar had reached his fortieth year and had never led an army under his own auspices nor served at all except in a subordinate rank. He had now attained the government of a province with the command of a strong military force constantly engaged in the maintenance of the Roman occupation of Spain and ready at any moment to be employed in the extension of the Roman territory and the subjugation of the restless tribes on its frontier he had two proximate objects before him the one to relieve himself from the pressure of his debts at home and amass a fortune for future expenditure the other to attach to his person a handful at least of officers and soldiers to form the nucleus of a great military power he found himself at the head of two or more legions and the attitude of the predatory tribes of lusitania yet unconquered furnished a ready pretext for action he carried his eagles to the shores of the atlantic and into recesses of the country whither the romans had never yet penetrated driving the enemy before him through the defiles of the herminian mountains and across the duro and the minho with a rude flotilla prepared for the service with the usual celerity of the roman shipbuilders he assailed the rocky strongholds to which the natives had betaken themselves on the coast of Galicia, and could pretend that in one campaign the further Spain was pacified even to the ocean. Through the ensuing winter he occupied himself with settling the finances of his province. He pretended to relieve the exhausted provincials from the burden of their obligations. He gave satisfaction at least to the Roman residents their creditors the booty he had extorted the tributes he had levied gratified the cupidity of his officials and he remitted large sums for the liquidation of his own debts at home brief as his command had been it constituted nevertheless a crisis of no trifling importance in his career it gave him confidence in his military talents which he had never previously exercised it gained him devoted officers and adherents, it freed him from the stress of his pecuniary embarrassments, and it sent him back to Rome, a mature aspirant to the triumph and the consulate. Accordingly, as the period for the elections drew near, Caesar ventured to quit his province in the middle of the year 60, before the arrival of a successor. He demanded a triumph for his military exploits, but he was still more anxious for the solid advantages of the consulship for which he offered himself as a candidate. The law required that every competitor for the chief magistracy should present himself to the people on three stated occasions in the forum, whereas the imperator, who still expected his triumph, was not allowed in the interval to enter the city walls this jealous regulation which separated by so sharp a line the military character from the civil had indeed in later times been frequently set aside and caesar might fairly claim the same indulgence which had recently been conceded to lucullus but the nobles chose on this occasion to screen themselves behind the letter of the law for they made no doubt 
that caesar with the vanity common to his countrymen would forego the consulship from which they were anxious to exclude him and grasp at the shadowy honour of the laurel crown and gilded chariot which they did not care to refuse but the present claimant was not to be so trifled with he waived his triumph disbanded his soldiers and paced the forum as a private citizen the people though balked of the spectacle they dearly loved acknowledged the compliment he thus paid to the value of their suffrages there were moreover other interests at work to advance the suit of the popular candidate and the nobles were obliged to content themselves with simply offering him a colleague from their own ranks caesar had evinced not only great self-control in his suit for this illustrious office he had exerted the special talent he most eminently possessed that of turning the interests of others to his own advantage and securing for his schemes the cooperation of his own most distinguished rivals his first care on his return to rome was to bring together the two men whose mutual jealousy a meaner politician would have been most anxious to foster crassus had never forgiven pompeius the laurels which he had so curtly plucked from him pompeius having once abased the statesman by whose competition he felt himself most nearly touched had neither the generosity nor the foresight to take him again by the hand baffled himself by the opposition of the senate he had sullenly withdrawn from public affairs and held himself aloof both from friends and enemies it was the policy of caesar to overcome the mutual repulsion of two such important personages and to open to each of them new views of ambition in which he could assist them both conjointly the formation of the league between these three aspirants to a dominant power in the state which is marked as the first triumvirate constitutes no doubt a signal epoch in the history of the republic it was not indeed like the second triumvirate which succeeded at a later period a regularly appointed board of three for the administration of affairs it neither had nor pretended to have any legal basis it was no more than a spontaneous and possibly a tacit understanding by which the parties interested mutually bound themselves to advance the special objects of each leaving the ultimate issue of their confederacy to the chances of the future it constituted in fact in the eyes of legists and statesmen a regnum or tyranny a scheme of lawless usurpation and as such it was ever denounced by the mouths of real or pretended patriots the application of the word regnum to this unholy combination strikes the keynote of lucan's rhetorical poem on the civil wars which followed upon its rupture but the conception of such a compact fraught as it was with the gravest consequences was due to the genius of caesar alone it was by the ability and conduct of caesar alone that it was carried into execution nor was he disloyal to his colleagues in carrying it out it was to the ascendancy of his own character and talents that he owed the superior fortune which abased in turn both his associates and raised him alone to the highest preeminence the ambition of caesar was indeed a different type from that of his two competitors pompeius and crassus both aimed at an ascendancy over the commonwealth 
and a position in which they should be unassailable by the stormy winds of the forum and the senate house they both regarded sulla perhaps as their model though neither of them was naturally disposed to violence and the shedding of blood they had shown themselves equally capable of the most ruthless barbarity crassus had nailed thousands of the captive insurgents to the cross pompeius had taken the lives of many distinguished citizens in his contest with the marian faction he had as lucan says licked the sword of sulla and the tiger as the poet also reminds us never forgets the taste of blood but at all events they would be unscrupulous in grasping and in retaining any powers which the state might allow them they would willingly accept the dictatorship if it were tendered to them and might hardly be expected to surrender it again while neither the one nor the other had the hardihood to seize an authority beyond the laws and traditions of the commonwealth neither of them understood that the time was come when the state could no longer be governed in the spirit of the republic of the scipios and that whether the old forms were still preserved or not the life of the rome of antiquity had really passed away caesar was influenced by no such legal superstitions as theirs he could openly declare that the commonwealth was now a body without a soul that the progress of conquest had transformed the city into an empire for the government of which it was necessary to consult the views of the vast aggregate of its subjects no less than those of their meagre handful of conquerors all the foreign nations and races which had become incorporated in the empire looked to an autocracy as the most natural and legitimate of all rules caesar was determined to make himself the interpreter of the great imperial will as opposed to the little clique which pretended to sway it from the city of the seven hills he was convinced that the world required a despot and would itself create a despot suited to its wants it was his ambition to be himself the man in whom its wants and its determination should centre whatever we may think of his personal morality we must acknowledge that it was well for the world that a man of genius should arise at such a crisis to direct the general sentiment and show how it could be realized accordingly in contemplating the rivalry of these three chiefs we need not scruple to give all our sympathy to caesar as compared with either of the others nor can we feel much interest in the position of the great body of the roman nobility who while pretending to be the defenders of ancient law and usage were really standing up for their class privilege to turn the blood and treasure of every other people to their own profit and to lord it over the world as a banded array of tyrants the nobles of rome who monopolized the emoluments of universal conquest were moreover at this period an effete aristocracy had they added the possession of talents and conduct to their numerous social advantages they could certainly have made headway against any one of the triumvirs or against all the three combined but they were for the most part steeped in luxury and corrupted by vicious indulgences with the death of catullus they lost the most honourable of their chiefs though even he had shown little ability as a leader lucullus allowed himself to sink into political torpor 
and among the princes of the aristocracy none other of greater mark can be mentioned a scipio a lentulus a marcellus bore each a great name but there was no other greatness among them two personages indeed must still be mentioned as the real guides of a faction which refused the leading of these genuine aristocrats the one was cicero the other cato both these men were honest and both had a definite purpose both could persuade themselves that the republic might be saved by clinging to its ancient traditions and that the commonwealth of the scipios might still be actually revived and perpetuated both were blind to the real circumstances of the case cato was blinded by superstition cicero by philosophy cato was the victim of his ignorance cicero of his learning both lived as it were in a world which he had invented for himself totally unlike that in which his contemporaries moved and acted cato indeed was a man of firmness and resolution cicero too was an enthusiast himself and had the gift of arousing enthusiasm in others much they might have done indeed they did effect much for the preservation of the commonwealth though certainly not enough to preserve it but in fact a fair chance was throughout denied them the nobles as a party gave their confidence to neither daring in their fatuity to despise the courage of the one and the eloquence of the other for cato as we have seen was a noble of the second rank only cicero was a new man altogether they alternately flattered and thwarted both besides securing the support of the two most powerful of the citizens caesar had connected himself with a wealthy candidate lucaeus who gladly defrayed a large part of his expenses the nobles who set up bibulus against this formidable combination entered the field with a vast subscription for bribing the centuries cato himself yielded to the urgency of the crisis and acknowledged that gold must be thrown into the balance against gold caesar and bibulus were elected but the candidate of the nobles proved no match for the candidate of the people caesar aimed at confirming his popularity by an agrarian law for the distribution of public domains among the needy citizens the spoils of the eastern wars had placed ample means at the disposal of the state for the purchase of land the methods which caesar devised for effecting it were liberal and conciliatory but the nobles refused to be conciliated cicero was alarmed at their impracticable conduct he was himself perhaps overcome by the fascination of caesar's genius and not insensible to the general justice of the proposal which in one shape or another had been brought repeatedly before the assemblies the nobles were willing to make a tool of cato who thereupon opposed his veto to the measure as tribune but caesar who could act with at least equal decision directed the lictor to lay hands upon his opponent satisfied however with the vigour of the first blow he refrained from carrying his threat into execution caesar continued throughout his term of office to act with repeated violence his aggressions upon the party of the nobles however provoked were grossly arbitrary he refused to consult the senate 
and declared that the committee of the tribes was competent to make laws without its concurrence even when the people were summoned to vote for the division of lands he took care to overawe all adverse influence by filling the city with the armed followers of his ally pompeius bibulus indeed was not wanting in courage summoned by the nobles and backed by cato and lucullus he advanced to caesar's seat and abruptly dissolved the assembly on the plea of adverse signs in the heavens but the time had passed for rallying upon such superstitions the populace attacked and flung him on the ground two of the tribunes were wounded lucullus was nearly killed cato dragged by main force from the rostra and the measure carried at last by the rout of the opposing party caesar had executed the great project of the gracchi and proved himself a worthy successor of marius he impressed even his vain associate with respect for his abilities and when he extorted from the senate the confirmation of the great captain's acts pompeius was completely charmed and blindly or weakly bound himself in still closer alliance with him by accepting the hand of his youthful daughter julia caesar's consulship was indeed an epoch of grave importance for the expression which it gave to the views of the popular party when the nobles abashed at their recent discomfiture shrank from all public action and bibulus shut up in his own house proclaimed a justitium or secession of all business for the remainder of the year his colleague was proposing measures to the Comitia for regulating the tribunals, for controlling the proconsuls, and for raising the population of the provinces in the scale of Roman society. From the first, he had avowed himself the patron of the provincials, and now that the occasion offered, he fulfilled the promise of his early career. The mob of the forum applauded his liberal enactments. From no liberal sentiments of their own, but rather for the defiance which they breathed against the faction they detested, and they heedlessly surrendered the principles of the Constitution, while proposing as an excellent jest that the year in which their hero had thus been all in all should be inscribed with the names of Gaius Caesar and Julius Caesar as consuls. End of section 8